Welcome to the latest Experts in the Field podcast from Foot Anstey's Farms, Estates and Rural Land Team. With guest speakers and in-house experts, we'll provide insights into rural developments and current affairs. I'm Edward Venmore, Head of the Rural Team at Foot Anstey. Pleased to bring you this episode in which we'll be considering the challenge of balancing the environment and food production and the opportunities that gives for landowners moving forward. Joining us today, I'm pleased to say, is Alex Stevens, who's Regional Policy Manager at the National Farmers Union in the Southwest. Alex has been with the NFU for over 10 years. Alex, we're delighted you're here to share your thoughts with us and thank you again for taking the time today. Obviously, as everyone will be familiar with, we're entering a period of unprecedented change with a real driver from government to see improvements in the environment. That's driving a lot of policy changes. And on top of that, you've obviously got the exit from the European Union and the end of BPS. There's many new terms and and policies for people to get their heads around. We hear talk of targets of net zero uh, by 2050, biodiversity net gain in relation to developments, uh, conservation covenants, and a raft of environmental land management schemes, which all add to the great deal of complexity that landowners are facing at the moment. Whatever policies you're looking at, the next few years is going to be a period of great transition. Uh, And in many of these areas, the key underlying tension at the heart of decision making is balancing the question of food production and food security against the environmental demands and uh, expectations of the public these days. So Alex, um, what are the key policies that will drive the changes in, in the rural market over the next few years? Well, you, you've touched upon a huge number there in that, in that short introduction. And your comment about unprecedented change really is true from all angles. You know, I'm, I'm going to talk today about um, changes to what we call the agricultural transition plan, which is about moving away from sort of land-based uh, basic payment scheme and so on. But just uh, to put the context, you know, you mentioned net zero, you know, you could have talked about trade and, you know, some of the, the deals that have been done recently. I think anyone who's been involved in this sector has never seen change like this all happening in one go. So, uh, so yeah, absolutely unprecedented and and really, yeah, quite quite unusual. I suppose the, the key element to, to pick out really is is that agricultural transition plan and that you know switch away from what we've all known over the last number of decades, land based, area based payments. So BPS or the basic payment scheme in old money, single farm payment, or however people refer to it, it was about the land and it was about a payment per hectare. And it's a real culture change what we're seeing now, because it's not about, you know, stewardship has always existed and there have always been sort of relatively green measures within uh, BPS and within CAP. But now we're really moving towards what government call uh, payment for public good, which is, is a massive sea change. In terms of the environmental land management schemes, can you give some commentary on and you know, the various ones that are available at the moment and, and what you see down the road? Yeah, so so at the moment, I think for most people, their routine is going to be the existing scheme. So things like countryside stewardship and the various tiers and levels that, that fall within that. And it's down to individuals to decide what's right for their business in terms of how intensive or not they want to be, whether they're grassland, whether they're arable, um, and what sort of ticks the boxes. Once you're in that route, of, of countryside stewardship you can then chop and change a bit and, and hedge your bets and look at some of the new schemes coming out so if you're looking at whole scale landscape change then there are some very large schemes that have recently been launched which are about biodiversity habitat over a, a large area not quite rewilding but not far off it 
Then we've got the sustainable farming incentive. You might hear it referred to as SFI or the pilot because there, there is a pilot going on at the moment under SFI where farmers are basically helping to co-design with DEFRA what a good scheme might look like. So, so that is an option for people. But at the moment, countryside stewardship is probably their routine. And those are the sort of the key ones to be aware of if they're making that decision. How do you think land use is going to be impacted by all these changes? I mean, certainly we, for example, we've had some inquiries sometimes from NFU members, and, but others as well, where we're starting to see that, that sort of tension between rewilding and a neighbouring farmer who's perhaps doing traditional farming at the moment. Those tensions are definitely starting to sort of come through in the inquiries we see. But how do you think land use is going to really be impacted? Do you think it's going to look very different the countryside in, in 10, 15 years' time? Well, I'm going to be, I don't know if this is controversial or not, but um, I think, you know, we know the southwest as a grass-growing region. We know that's what it does well. The climate, the geography, the topography, all those sorts of things really lend themselves. Number of daylight days we get, you know, days of sunshine in the southwest compared to other parts of England, also significantly different. So we grow grass well, and that's not going to change. And I imagine that over the you know the decades to come, we'll still see a you know a grass-based production system for the region. So so on the face of it, not drastic changes, but what I think we will see is corners of fields slightly rougher grazing fields that suddenly don't quite look like they're being managed in the same way um, whether they've just been left and effectively not necessarily rewilded but but left to do their own thing or whether we'll see you know corners of fields rounded off for you know perhaps wildflower strips or you know pollen rich seed mixes and things like that so you'll start to see i think on a field basis changes to how that field is is being managed and run so that the most productive parts of the field and of the farm are being used for production and the parts that are less productive will be put aside into into various schemes but then for the larger businesses who perhaps don't have food production at their core and aren't so wedded to it that's where we will i think see some larger change and we'll see um certainly more trees being planted we'll certainly see more more land being left to i guess fall out of what's traditionally been called good agricultural and environmental condition and it'll still be you know farmable but it won't be as productive as it has been previously what sort of um schemes you or or development opportunities are you finding members uh, talk about I mean, over you know many years now solar parks for example were obviously um you know a hot topic in this part of the country and then come in and out of uh, fashion a bit and definitely a bit more in fashion at the moment but battery storage sites has obviously been a growing area that we've mm-hmm. um we've seen but what other real trends are you picking up uh, particularly in this part of the world where we are in the southwest yeah so we're seeing lots of trends either as part of the changes under agricultural transition or just down to the market we're getting lots of members who are approached by developers or firms wanting to offset either nitrates or phosphate production so housing developers particularly around areas like the somerset levels at the moment I'm not aware of deals that have been signed, but offers have been made and they're quite long term offers about re-wetting fields and, and effectively you know, taking them out of production so that they can form part of water storage and phosphates and nitrate storage, which is you know, a new area where people will certainly need lots of advice. We're going to see, I think, more and more people being offered the opportunity to, to offer, um, I guess, a public good in a way. And so... You mentioned battery storage. You know, we recently held a webinar 
for, for farmers to talk about the opportunity to provide car charging points if they happen to be near a main road or a, a diversified business or something like that. And I was quite shocked that it was the most popular webinar that I've done in the last year yeah, with over 150 members on the call, lots of follow-ups, lots of people wanting to do it. So I think we'll see, see more of that. But often when you're when you're focusing on renewable energy, particularly, the deciding factor is your grid connection. And unfortunately, in a lot of the southwest, grid connections aren't quite up to scratch, particularly south of Hinkley Point, where there's still we're still waiting for infrastructure upgrades around Hinkley. So I think when that opens up, we'll see a bit more of an influx. Um, but certainly there's a lot of interest in battery storage. It makes sense when you're, you know, when you're in a remote area to be able to do that and to be able to sort of be master of your own destiny a little bit and manage that that production. The other challenge, of course, is that when you're looking at renewables, it could be about offsetting your own use. It could be about exporting to the grid. It's just thinking about who gets the benefit from that and how and on what terms. And again, that's somewhere that advice should be sought, particularly if your assumption is that by producing renewable energy and exporting it to the grid, that then offsets your own produ- production, whereas actually those credits belong to the grid. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one, of, one of our other podcasts in this series, we, we looked at the opportunities around renewables because we act for a range of different clients in this area from landowners to operators and, and, and investors and, and the market has got much more sophisticated but there is still a real need for landowners to take that advice and also consider the long-term implications of taking a block of land out of out of other possible use be that agriculture or other uh, other opportunities as we just discussed putting it you know, for the long term into, into a renewables project there's a lot of interest obviously in the in the press at the moment uh, and um and political pressure on the environment and the environment schemes has been very, you know, a hot topic over the last twelve months with COP twenty six and many, many other initiatives over the last uh, over the last few years. But that tension with with food production, I think, is a really interesting interesting question. And I'm going to perhaps tread in the controversial area of asking you what the NFU's position is on on that topic. It, it is, I think seemingly a controversial area and and often you know if i'm involved in a meeting or a discussion group about this there's an assumption made that nfu is all about food production and nothing else which obviously isn't the case and the key thing for our members is that within all of this change and this this movable feast of government policy that there is an arena in which they can successfully run a business and be profitable And that could be about food production for some and actually maybe even intensifying that food production could be about reducing cost for other businesses, or it may be about going almost fully down that environmental route. That's for individuals to decide. But absolutely, we think that food production, sustainable food production should go hand in hand with a lot of the environmental benefits and public benefits that that farmers and landowners can offer. But it's about getting that balance right. And I think understanding what, what you want for your business and what your objectives are over the longer term to be able to do that but certainly you know any myth busting that I can do just to confirm that the NFU absolutely supports all types of you know production and that could be about renewable energy crop production you know we've just launched some interesting initiatives around um, production of you know crops to go into biogas plants and energy plants and again that comes with some controversy about the land use but ultimately it's for we want to see profitable farming businesses out there. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking as about some of the implications of this, I mean, we do a, a lot of landlord and tenant work and you know, some of the environmental schemes that we talk about, for example, don't sit necessarily very easily with terms in old tenancies. And obviously, 
uh, recent changes to legislation and some of the older types of tenancies you see from the 1986 Act enable tenants to try to approach the landowners to get the terms of those restrictions on the, in the tenancy varied so that they can enter into these schemes. Are you seeing many tenant farmers you know, in, embark down that road of really looking at their options or are they still sitting back? My impression is they're still trying to understand all the options available to them before, before really entering into that area with their, with their landlord. I think you're right. And I think also, that, you know, the landlord is, is sitting back to some extent. Um, it comes down to, I guess, the, the length of tenancy that an individual has, the, the relationship they have with their landlords, you know, private versus some of the larger, you know, institutional and other types of landlords, you know, the relationships are very different. I can talk about some of the anecdotal stuff that, that I've been hearing. And, and certainly, you know, looking at those larger schemes that are being launched, tenant farmers very much feel like well this isn't for me because I can't offer the length of term that's required here this is funding that's out of my reach because of my tenancy and therefore puts me at a disadvantage compared to the non-tenanted sector and I think they're probably right to have those concerns at this stage we are seeing some examples of tenants who are speaking to their landlord about you know individual parts of of the land that perhaps they could get a you know a tweak to their tenancy arrangement on so that they can extend the terms or bring it into some kind of stewardship agreement over a longer period. Um, so that's really positive. But those examples, unfortunately, are few and far between, and we need to make sure that we shine a light on those. And I think t- to look you know conversely at the you know the more negative um, scenarios I'm seeing, I've heard from farmers who've said, well, actually my landlord has taken back some really interesting sites of woodland and parts of the farm that might be useful for tree planting or even you know renewable energy like we were talking about earlier and those those parts of the land are being lost to the tenant farmer because they present an opportunity for the landlord and you know just really focus that tenant into purely food production and maybe a few other diversifications rather than being able to get the best out of these schemes. Yeah, just on the on the back of that, are you um, what are you seeing any few members do over the last you know, twelve months? Are they, are they starting to plan for these uh, these changes, which are already coming in, or are they still sort of just trying to understand uh, all this and and then formulate their business plans for, you know, for the medium and long term? Yeah, it's it's a bit from column A, a bit from column B, and and a lot in between as well. I speak to members who are still not. I wouldn't say in denial, but but still feel like well you know we've had changes before we've had cap reform before and things worked out all right maybe my bps is going to go down but something's going to replace it through to those who are absolutely scenario planning for the worst case and working out how they can be profitable if for example they had access to no funding at all so i think we're seeing seeing all of those things and and i'll talk later on about some you know what's going on in in terms of advice and where people can get advice but certainly when we've been holding meetings where we've talked through the changes that are coming, the same farmers come along again and again. And they're the same farmers who are reading all the information that's going out, trying their best to understand it. And most of the time, because of the the changing way that government are implementing this, I can't tell them anything new, but they're still making sure they go to the meetings because they understand how important it is to, to acknowledge the change and to prepare and plan for it so I am really worried about that kind of silent majority who I hope are reading some of the information that's going out but aren't necessarily engaging yeah well, it'd be fair it's a bewildering amount of change in such a short period of time and 
obviously the last two years for all of us the way in which we access information is um has changed and if any of you i know do an awful lot of uh, in normal times we do an awful lot of in-person seminars but again you've not had the opportunity to do that over the last two years you do rely on people accessing these things in different ways isn't it yeah and and actually i mean our, our webinars that we started um during the first lockdown have been really popular um and we'll get you know p- potentially hundreds of farmers join those it's interesting to see you know the, the same names obviously crop up that you would expect to see out and about at a, at a meeting but it's been nice to see that we've had new members join who wouldn't otherwise want to come along to an nfu meeting for whatever perception they may or may not have but they're happy to sit at home you know over a late breakfast or or lunch <laughs> and, and listen into what's being said yeah absolutely just going back to the the, the question of um tendencies do you do you think you know, for, for obviously for a very long period of time there's often been a, de- a debate as to whether or not in this country we really offer generally speaking long enough terms of tenancy for 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 farmers particularly new you know people trying to come into the sector and um, build up their business to get those long-term tenancies that they need to you know, build a business plan do you think this is going to increase or decrease the opportunity for those long-term tenancies these environmental schemes and the options issues that we're talking about or do you think landowners are going to try to um you know, try to retain that control more of the land particularly in a time of uncertainty so actually we'll find that tenancies will be of a generally shorter term i think that um bold and engaged um landlords who have a great relationship with their tenants um will probably be happy to offer longer more secure terms um but i think for the majority while there is so much unknown and you mentioned just now that it is you know it's changing so rapidly so that's why people are are finding this a, a struggle i guess you know a sensible course of action for a landlord is to try and hedge your bets and to think, well, I don't quite know what's going to happen here, so I'll offer a shorter term. Obviously, that then presents challenges for those who are um, putting in offers for for a tenancy um, agreement, because, you know, what you may want to offer in return to the landlord, which could be obviously there's the financial element, but it may be about improvements you want to make to the land or infrastructure or something else, you're less likely to to want to go all in on those improvements if you know you've only got three years with the potential for a bit more whereas 10 15 plus would give you that security to make those investments and improvements and work together with your landlord so i think there's a lot of chicken and egg about who blinks first on some of this yeah absolutely one of the areas i'm most interested in is the um, is whether these you know some of the schemes we've talked about will really encourage groups of farmers to come together and work in in a in a much more formal way than they've done in the in in the past. So, are you seeing, uh, you know, and this is a question from all aimed at all around the country because obviously different areas, different prevalences of different types of farming. Um, are you seeing uh, la- uh, farmers come together in cooperatives, pooling arrangements, so they can deal with brokers for carbon trading or, or whatever schemes they're looking at? Are you seeing that develop across in the some the in some cases? Yeah, so. It's really interesting looking at the Southwest. And as you said, some of it's about the sector that you're in. Some of it's about isolation and all sorts of other factors. Um, And there are huge differences north to south, east to west in the region. Um, We've got some great examples of farmers coming together on projects to um, perhaps mitigate the impact of pollution or challenges like nitrates. So Pool Harbour is a really good example of farmers coming together on that to come up with a solution that they can offer to the water company and to the environment agency. So big box ticks there. And that cluster of farmers are already talking about 
you know um, having facilitators to help them all as a grouping put in you know offers on on elm or sfi and other things as well so i'm seeing that happening already we've got groups of farmers who are collaborating within aonbs or national parks not necessarily purely focused on the environmental elements but sometimes some of those productivity grants as well such as sharing equipment so the blackdown hills for example recently supported a grant for a zero tillage cedar which is going between a number of farms and the condition that's applied to that is that they then hold open days and show other farmers what they're doing to, to minimize impact so we are seeing individual examples but i think when it comes to the real the really big ticket items it's going to be non-farming groups that drive a lot of that so particularly wildlife trusts and others who are able to kind of you know mobilize their troops a little more and and take a sort of a wider approach to landscape change do you think that they will um, try and you know, get together and actually pull together a group of landowners and say, look, we'd like to do this in this specific area because it's the perfect area for it, for ABC, and this is how it can work for you on many fronts, including you know, from a financial perspective? Yeah, they will do that, and they are doing that. Um, and particularly Somerset is a really good example, again, where where that's sort of happening, particularly in areas such as the levels and some of the AONBs. So we will see that, but again, it's about the offer that's made to the farmer, who's in control, what the terms are, and the aspiration of the farmer, you know, are they all about production? Are they about mixing it? Do they want to share that expertise? And and sometimes, you know, cultural changes and, and changes to attitudes and ways of working always feel like well, they should be the easiest because effectively they're almost cost neutral, aren't they? But they're actually the hardest to do because when you're talking about systems that have been in operation for for generations or ways of working that have been determined by you know the previous system under cap you know it's not going to change overnight and, and as you you know relating it back to the tenancy conversation farming's a long game it is absolutely i think with, with these sort of you know, grouping uh, arrangements what we for many many years we've had this conversation obviously with with farming families in relation to the importance of making sure things are documented partnership agreements wills you know family constitutions etc and um certainly like anything as you'd expect the solicitor to say they should certainly make sure these things are properly documented and uh, organized because an awful lot of money will turn on it and i can see um i can see some real tensions between landowners developing if they don't aren't clear on the aims of a project at the outset how they're going to work together to to deliver to whoever they're contracting with on these things yeah and you can apply that to to other contracts as well you know the number of calls we get from farmers wanting advice on their dairy contract or, or anything like that and not having those key documents to hand or recent versions and you know does really hold things up when you're seeking detailed legal advice yeah absolutely and that's something then if you've looked at for many years particularly with your contract checking service which we obviously work with as yeah. as well exactly picks up on the importance of those sorts of things Alex, um, it's been really uh, good to talk to you. Can I, can I sort of try to draw us to a conclusion by perhaps asking for your uh, three top tips for a landowner or farmer uh, planning for the future right now? That's quite a challenging, uh, <laughs> big question. What are your three top yeah, tips? Yeah, well, and I'm going to cheat slightly and maybe kind of merge a few together. But I think, first off, you need to work out what is the impact on your business of all this change. Um, you need to think about what actually how much of my income does come from the various schemes out there and how much can easily be replaced by a similar scheme. And then what's that gap? There will be a gap for most people. So is it a case of reducing operating costs and 
and kind of you know tightening the belt is it a case of producing more and being more productive where you can just understand what that impact will be and then seek advice so it could be through NFU and attending meetings or signing up for DEFRA blog posts so that you get the latest information, you know, making sure they're signed up to your, your newsletters and updates as well, Edward, and all that sort of stuff, you know, whether it's a, an accountant or whoever they need to go to. But I think probably most importantly, if, if, um, if not down this route already, DEFRA supported a number of organisations to provide information through their um, uh, farming resilience fund that's now been extended to september initially it was due to stop in march round one so for anyone who hasn't started that process of just getting a you know someone outside the business to take a bit of a, a bird's eye view of what's going on in the business then absolutely they should do that and then i think understand um you know the technical elements of what's out there and what's available to you so seek that detailed information advice like we were talking about just now but take the bigger picture view. So we've talked a lot about stewardship schemes and things that are available now, but ag transition is not just about environment, it's about productivity, um, it's about changes to enforcement, it's about changes to um, how farms are inspected and regulated. So all those things need to be understood when you're making those decisions. So I know it's big and I know we're all busy, you know, in many cases, just keeping our head above water, but actually this, this really is important and it is huge change. Thank you, Alex. Really appreciate your time today. I can imagine that a lot of what we've talked about is going to dominate your inbox over the next few years. For me, these issues are going to be the real driver in lots of decisions landowners have to make about the direction of their businesses over the coming years. We've all got a lot to learn through these challenges, but it's not a case of if they happen, they are happening and they'll continue to develop over the next few years. Everyone should make use of the huge amount of material that's available and seek advice from accountants, land agents, and obviously uh, their solicitors. And of course, the NFU has got a, a lot of excellent help available on its website and through advisors across the country uh, like Alex. I hope everyone listening found that useful. Please do take a look at our website and subscribe to future editions of this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next Foot Anstey Experts in the Field podcast. Join us next time for more insights on important rural and agricultural issues. Find out more about our podcast series at footanstey.com.